question, right? So, so just to, to uh, say what we were talking about until now, he was differentiating between those who are attaining the virtue of purity and the virtue of holiness. The virtue of purity, what one has achieved is that they are able to focus solely on um, their corporeal deeds serve only their essential needs. And he only does them out of necessity. So he does as little as possible in terms of servicing his materialistic needs because it's all a necessary evil. But now when you reach this really high level of holiness, then all of a sudden you've achieved a completely different level. And now instead of just doing whatever is absolutely a necessity to keep your body going, you're actually, your body and soul are operating in tandem. And actually your materialistic desires are now no longer a materialistic desire, but they're actually a spiritual desire. In other words, it, it, it is a fulfillment of a spiritual need to feed your body, to feed your goof, right? To feed your body. Your earthly body is actually becomes a fulfillment of the spiritual um, needs. It's actually what we see in this past week's parasha, you know, as we're, we're looking at the creation of mankind and we see that we have a part of us that comes from below and a part of us that comes from above. So one of my daughters asked at the Shabbos table, you know, based on what one of her teachers, and she didn't come up with the question on her own. Uh, the question is, if everything was created from the earth, then why is it that man specifically gets to have the name Adam, right? Why are we called Adam after Adama? Because we're created from the earth. Well, technically everything's created from the earth. So it's a little bit of a, not a misnomer, but it's like, okay, everything, like it's a little strange. Like why specifically us? This question was asked by the Maharal. Behuda Lowy, who's famous for uh, the rumor allegedly having created a golem, right? A, a creation of something that didn't actually have, um, uh, happens to be exactly what we're talking about, you know, in terms of mankind or the soul is breathed into him. Uh, it seems to be that this is not actually a true story. Um, and he should not be famous for that. He should rightfully be famous for his very innovative way of looking at the entire Torah and in terms of his explanation of, of the Gemara and explanation. Anyway, so he asks this question. Why are we called Adam, right? Everything should be called Adam or nothing should be called Adam, but why specifically man? So I, I paraphrase a little bit here, but his answer has to do with the fact that the earth has the potential to create something far greater than itself, right? You stick a seed in the ground and you water it and all of a sudden it sprouts up into an apple tree. And not all of a sudden, over a couple of years, it can sprout up into an apple tree. So it's just earth and you don't even see anything, but all of a sudden it can create something far greater than itself. The only creation that has the ability to create something far greater than itself, right, is mankind. And I don't mean to say in the way that, in the way that the earth creates something far greater than itself, that you can see a tangible benefit. That's not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is that we have the ability to uplift ourselves and to take our goof, to take our materialistic part of ourselves that comes from the Adama, from the ground, and to elevate it until it reaches a level higher than the angels can reach, right? You know, so when God breathes that portion of himself into us, that comes from the heavens, that comes from the area in which the, the angels reside. And when you can take the guf from down below and the, the neshama, the soul that comes straight from heaven, and you put them together and fully align in exactly the same path and even the materialistic needs now are servicing the spiritual and that's really what he's referring to here okay so in similar fashion they have said the righteous themselves are the divine chariot for the divine presence dwells with them as it dwelt within the Beit HaMikdash the divine chariot is you know 
talking about the, the vision of Ezekiel, right? The Maisa Merkava, which is something that Chazal, that our sages teach us, is completely incomprehensible unless you have the tradition as to what is actually occurring in that vision. And it is not something that we're supposed to talk about in, in public. Now, I wish I could say that the reason why I'm not going to tell you is because it's in public. The real truth is I can't tell you because I don't know myself what's going on in that in the incident. However, the idea is that there is these, um, these things which sort of carry God's presence, so to speak. And I'm only saying the words, I, I don't know what they mean. Um, so the idea that we're trying to say is that the God sort of resides, the Shekhinah resides within the righteous people, the same way it resided within the Beit HaMikdash. Consequently, the food that they eat is likened to a sacrificial offering that is placed on the fires of the altar. And whatever offerings were brought to the altar must have unquestionably undergone a tremendous spiritual elevation since they were being sacrificed before the divine presence. The enhancement that they received as a result of this was so great that their entire species throughout the world was blessed accordingly as our sages of blessed memory explained in the Midrash. In similar vein, the food and drink that is eaten by a holy person undergoes a spiritual elevation as though it had actually undergone sacrifice on the altar. A fascinating idea that is literally exactly on, on par with something that is brought in the temple. Right? So we, we pray in the Shemona Esrei three times a day for a temple to be rebuilt and that we could bring offerings again. But in truth, very righteous people, and once again, very, very holy people, achieve a level that the food and drink that they put into their bodies, to some extent, have a similar capacity as bringing an offering in the temple. This is similar to what they of blessed memory said in the Talmud. Whoever brings a gift to a Torah scholar is regarded as if he has brought bikurim. Bikurim are the first fruits offering. So if you bring a gift to them, here as it's regarded as if you have brought Bikurim. And they said, once again in the Talmud, fill the fruits of Torah scholars with wine in place of the wine libations. So typically there are wine libations that were brought on the altar. Now we no longer have an altar. How do we, what takes the place of the wine libations? Bringing wine to Torah scholars. Now, this does not mean that the Torah scholars should be chasing after food and drink, heaven forbid, filling their throats in the manner of a glutton stuffing himself. Rather, it must be understood within the context of what I have already mentioned, that the Torah scholars possess holiness in their ways and in all their deeds are truly likened to the Beit HaMikdash and the altar, for the divine presence dwells with them just as it dwells within the Beit HaMikdash. Therefore, whatever is brought to them is like a sacrifice upon the altar, and the filling of their throats is in place of the filling of the basins into which the libations were poured. And so, so on a surface level, if someone was studying the Talmud and the Talmud is talking about ensuring that you serve the, the Torah scholars food and drink. And I've, I have heard this from perhaps very cynical people saying how self-serving it is that the Talmud is praising those who are serving Torah scholars food and drink. Well, yeah, that makes sense. That's what the Talmud would wanna do because they wanna ensure that someone's taking care of their material needs, right? But that's an incredibly cynical and corrupted, jaded way of looking at the world. And Masilat Yesharim explains to us, the, the, the point over here is not the emphasis on the Torah scholar's ability to eat the food. 
point over here is the lesson that the Torah, that the, the Gemara is trying to teach the rest of us as to what our attitude should be towards what, what someone who is incredibly holy can achieve in this world. In this manner, any object in the world that they, Torah scholars, make use of, after they have already attached themselves to the Blessed One's holiness, is elevated spiritually and enhanced since it has served the needs of the righteous. Our sages of blessed memory were referring to this in connection with the stones of the place that Yaakov took and placed around his head. Torah tells us the story that Yaakov goes to sleep for the first time in a long time when he's on his way to find a wife, right? Back where his mother, Rivka, came from. And what happens? He goes to sleep. And before he goes to sleep, he takes 12 rocks and he places them around his head. It says in the morning that he picks his head up and there's one rock. Right, it says it in the singular. So our sages explain that what this means is that in the morning there was only one rock, that the, the 12 rocks all desire to serve Yaakov and to be the one rock upon which he places his head. So in the morning, they actually had um, merged into one. Rabbi Yitzchak said that this teaches us that they all gathered together, each one saying that the righteous lay his head upon me. The Silat Yisharim is explaining like this. What the rocks were saying is that the greatest elevation for a rock in this world is to have a righteous person use them as a pillow. And that's why they all desire to have this happen. And miraculously, God, God made it occur that they all came together in this service.